Well, y'all can take a seat. Good morning. It is so good to be with you guys. Uh, hopefully, you're all recovered after the Thanksgiving holiday and all the driving and the turkey and the football or whatever your family does. Uh, but it is so good to be with you. Um, if I have not met you yet, my name is Thomas Scythe, and I'm the youth pastor here at Anderson. Um, and so uh, I'm normally across the street uh, with our junior high and high school students, but it is a joy to be with you guys this morning. As uh, Zach said earlier, we are not going to be talking about Revelation today. Um, instead, uh, we're just kind of taking a break and picking that back up next week. Uh, but I want to talk about prayer. Um, it's something that I've been learning a lot about uh, over the past uh, couple years um, and want to share with you some of the things that I think I've been learning. Um, but to, to begin, I want to tell you about um, the first time me and my wife bought our, our house, the, right, the first house that we bought. Um, and so I want you to picture for a second um, that moment, right, for you, the first property that you purchased, right? You became like, a, like, as we say to our son, you're a big boy now, right? Like you buy a property, you buy a house, or for some of you, if you're still in college, uh, maybe that, that first house uh, that you live in or that first apartment that you get, uh, that you're not living in your parents' home anymore. And so I want to talk about that process, right? Because there's a lot of different things that you can look for in a house, right? You can look at the foundation. You can look for the roof. You can see how old the home is. You're like, I want the rustic look. Uh, man, I want uh, something that feels old but is new or whatever, like, right? There's a lot of different things that we can say, right? You can look at what color is it? What is the uh, plumbing like? You can look at so many different things when it comes to a home buying process. But there's one thing that quickly rose to the top of the list for me, and that was location, right? Because you can have a little shed on a property, but if it is awesome in location, right, you can work with that, you can add on to it, and your property value will increase, right? There's a lot of different things you can focus on, but you cannot change the location. Um, right, this is why, like, uh, my favorite coffee shop in town is a little coffee shop called Carport Coffee. Some of you may have been there before, right? It is a tiny building, poorly insulated, right? It gets freezing in the winter and it gets hot in the summer, right? And there's like four and a half parking spots, but the location is sublime. It is amazing. And so it is packed and it is good. It is fun to be there because there are so many people there. Location, And I tell you that because I think when it comes to the idea of prayer, there's a lot of different things that we can set our minds on and think about what we need to do, right, to make prayer really effective or to make our prayer life thrive, right? And then, and then some of these things can be superficial, right? We can think like, okay, I need to, okay, it needs to be first thing in the morning. I need to have my coffee right there uh, or tea, right? And I need to have that chair that's like comfortable and I need to make sure my back's not hurting. I need to get that pillow, right? There's so many different things that we can focus on when it comes to prayer. But what actually are the things that Jesus teaches us to embrace Right, the things that, regardless of everything else, will make our prayer life thrive. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Luke, two different spots. But I want to look at uh, a few different teachings that Jesus offers to us as his followers on prayer. And I think he gives us some very, very clear guidance on the things that actually matter when it comes to prayer. 
and how to produce in us a prayer life that, is, that just thrives. How do we become the kind of people that have power in prayer? Right? All of us want to have a prayer life that thrives. I don't think anyone in here who is a believer who says, I want to follow Jesus would say, yeah, prayer, whatever. Like, I, just, I, I hope it's boring. I don't want to experience God's presence in any way. I don't want to experience the power of God. All of us want to experience, kind of like what they write in James chapter 5, when it says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. I think most of us, right, if we're honest, we're listening to that, we're like, that's the kind of prayer life I want. I want to be able to pray, and like the, it just stops raining. Right, I want to pray, and it's like three years, no rain. And then I pray again, and it starts to downpour. It's like, I think as believers, we should yearn for that. Right? We should want that kind of prayer life where we pray, and the spiritual landscape of the world changes, and the dynamics in the room shift. And when we pray for people, it's powerful in their life. I think all of us want that. And as we read the scriptures, we see that. So how do we take steps to get there where we say, man, my prayer life just thrives. I feel connected to God and I interact with him. And I want to begin by just kind of talking about what is prayer. I don't have a ton of time for this, but the best, uh, I guess, description uh, comes from Tim Keller, um, who I think we can agree is a genius right here. He says, prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through his word and his grace which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. And I love this quote because he talks about how prayer is this conversation with God. God begins a conversation with us through his revealed word. He tells us who he is, what he is like. And when we bow our heads and we pray, we are responding and talking and engaging with the God who has revealed himself to us through his word. And as we learn and we practice, prayer is this interaction with the most high God. Prayer is not meditation. It's not just us centering ourselves. Prayer is not us just thinking positive thoughts or hoping in, in, in some kind of direction. Prayer, as the Bible presents it, is us interacting with the living God, talking with him, responding to him, listening to him. And so I think that is a helpful definition. So like I said, Go to Luke chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 2. Here's my first point. Prayers that thrive are persistent. Prayers that thrive are persistent. So read with me in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 2. This is Jesus, and he says, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. So I just want to stop right there and, and, and just look at this passage real quick. Jesus is sharing this parable, right? And he's talking about there's this judge, and he's unrighteous, right? He says that he does not fear God. He doesn't care about what God says. He doesn't fear the law of God. He's just kind of doing what he thinks is right in his own eyes. And it says he does not respect man, right? And, and there's a theological term for this. It is, he is a jerk, okay? That's, that's the correct term there, okay? So this guy, he doesn't care about people. He doesn't care about God. He's just carrying out, as he sees fit, what he thinks 
uh, is right. And then there is this widow, this widow who comes to him, and somehow she has gotten into legal trouble. Someone's trying to take advantage of her. Someone's trying to uh, kind of prey on her weakness. She represents vulnerability, right? And she keeps coming to this judge over and over again. And she says, give me legal protection. You're the only one who can protect me. So give me legal protection. And let's keep reading. And it says, for a while, he, the judge, was unwilling But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. This is a, a, it's a funny story because the judge is unwilling. The judge is unwilling to respond to her need. And she just keeps coming day after day after day. Give me legal protection. Give me legal protection. Help me. You're the only one who can settle this dispute. And finally, not because of the kindness of his heart or because it's like the Christmas holiday where he's like, you know, like it's not like a Scrooge moment where uh, he, he like has a change of heart. He's like, here, Tim, like here's a turkey. You know, like he, he is, he's just saying, I am tired of this person bothering me. I'm tired of her coming every single day to my office and asking me for stuff. So I'm just going to give her what she wants so she will stop talking to me. And Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in all the earth? And he says, just like the widow goes to the unrighteous judge, he goes, that's, that's what you should be like with God. And you're like, Jesus, this is a funny story, right? Like, we should, he says, you should bother God with your prayers. But he, he doesn't say that God is like the unrighteous judge. It's a contrast with the judge. He says, how much more should you go to a righteous, loving God if an unrighteous judge will respond to persistent prayer? How much more will a loving God respond when you continually go before him? Now, um, all of us, I think, have had this moment. It's a shared, like, human experience, right? Whether that's uh, with, like, your AT&T phone bill or Verizon or Sudlink or whatever it is. But who has had this experience where all of a sudden, like, your bill just slowly has risen over time, right? And you're like, what's up with that? Like, I paid this much and now I'm paying, like, and, and if, it, if you don't say anything, they won't change it. But what happens, right? If you're really savvy, if you're, if you're uh, sly, you can call and be like, hey, right? Like, why is my bill raising? They're like, oh, well, it's a promotional. But if you like keep calling them or threaten to leave, they will actually lower your bill. Has anyone ever experienced this, right? Like, like if you just keep staying on top of them, they'll keep your bill low. And I thought of that as like, as, as, a, as a picture of kind of what's happening in this story. It's like, man, if you just stay on top of it, right? If you keep asking, if you keep going, like, like people respond to that. And Jesus is trying to say, if, if people If they respond to that, whether they're righteous or unrighteous, how much more will a righteous God respond to us? Persistence in prayer leads to experiencing the power of prayer in our lives. I just want to read off a few scriptures. Look at what the scriptures say about how often we should pray. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. 
Ephesians chapter 6, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. This is all over the scriptures. The, 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 the scriptures make such a big deal about prayer. They say devote your life to prayer. Devote your life to the practice of prayer. Be persistent in prayer. Pray at all times. Develop this habit of prayer in your life because God responds to that. If you want to take a step forward in your prayer life, resolve in your heart to say, I'm going to be a per person who's persistent in prayer. But I think if we're honest, right, if you're like me, prayer is really difficult, right? Like I would rather do something else often, right? I'd rather watch TV. I would rather talk to a friend or like there's so many different times where different distractions will come in and they're not even bad things. It's just, how do I make time for this? And as I was thinking this week, I think there's two things that get into, uh, kind of block us from developing a persistent prayer life. And I think the first one is this. We have a false belief about what prayer actually is. Right? We, we, we see the teachings on prayer, but a lot of times we think that prayer is some kind of just like lip service. Right? We think that it's just, yeah, God's going to do what God's going to do. And so it actually doesn't matter if I pray or not. Right, because God's just like, God's, he's got this train moving forward. He's, he's taking this a direction and like, sure, like I can like align with that or not, uh, but it doesn't actually matter if I pray. God doesn't really care because God's just going to do what he's going to do. And we kind of have this belief that prayer doesn't actually do anything. And if you just read through the scriptures, that is not how the Bible talks about prayer. Jesus will say, in uh, Matthew chapter 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened to you. Prayer does change things. And I don't know how God's sovereignty and, and his response to our prayers works. Right, that, that is one of the, we, we, that is something that is inexplainable. But the scriptures over and over and over again say pray. God loves when we pray. God responds to us when we pray. God, God rejoices when his people seek his face. So I think that's the first thing. We have uh, a false belief about prayer. We, we say in our minds, it doesn't do anything. And that's not true. Prayer changes the landscape of the world. But I think the second thing is just busyness. I love what James chapter 4 says. You do not have because you do not ask. James says that twice in the book of James. He says the reason that you haven't received what God wants to give you is simply because you have not asked him. He's waiting to give you something or he's waiting to speak to you. But he says you don't seek him. And I just want you to think about that because there's things that God wants to do in your life, powerful things that God wants to do. God wants to move in powerful ways. And, and according to scripture, sometimes we don't get to experience those things because we just don't ask God to do it. And I think sometimes we're just, we say, I'm too busy for that. Or there's not enough time for that. Now, if you say, okay, I'm really busy, and some of you are extremely busy, I want to show you this passage from Acts chapter 6. 
Okay, Acts chapter six. So this is early on in church history, right? The church is just forming, it's blowing up, like people are coming to faith, it's awesome. The church is growing and they're like, how do we govern this thing? Like we don't even know. Like, and, and God is just moving in powerful, powerful ways. And the apostles are starting to get overrun. They're getting too busy with good things. Look what this says. It says, so the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Right? Ministry was getting overwhelming for the, for the apostles, right? Widows were coming to them and they were saying, hey, you're not, you're, you're, we're not treating all of us fairly. There's not enough food being served to all the different widows. And, and they say, okay, we're going to form a new volunteer team because in the apostles' minds, if they were too busy serving widows, right, and they didn't have time for prayer, they said, that's a problem. And so they, think about this. They actually form a network of volunteers in the church. An entire different system of leadership is created so that the apostles would have time to pray and to, and to carry out the ministry of the word. Now just think about that. It was such a high value for them where they say, I can't even, like, no. And how often do many of us get busy serving in the church or, or volunteering and we say, okay, I'm, I'm doing good things for the Lord, but there's no time just to devote ourselves to prayer. We must be persistent in prayer. Now, how do we practically do that? I, think, I don't think it just looks like leaving here and being like, I'm going to pray more. Go. Like, like, let's just do this. Right? I think it starts with this. Right? This, is what, this is what I've learned. And I'm, I'm, I'm growing in this with you guys. Um, right? I think it begins with just Setting aside a time each week, pick one time, start with that, and say, I'm going to set aside 30 minutes, and that 30 minutes is just going to be set aside to pray. It's not going to be to do a great devotional like, and, and, and meet with people. It's just going to be a time for me to pray and talk to God, right? And if you're like, I'm bad at prayer, it's hard for me to focus, the only way to learn to pray is to do it. Right? It's not by reading about it or thinking about it really hard. It's just setting aside time to pray. So pick 30 minutes, pick 45 minutes, whatever, and say, hey, every week at this time, we're going to pray together. I'm going to pray with people. I'm going to pray individually and build that into your character as a believer. Because again, prayers that thrive are persistent. Let's keep going. My second point today is prayers that thrive are humble. So I want to keep reading in Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells a different story, starting in verse 9. And he says, And also, he also, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. Verse 10, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, I want to pause right there because if you are in the first century audience right here, right, you're a Jew sitting in there, there's pictures that come into your mind instantly. We don't really think of it this way because honestly, like, we've developed a pretty negative view of Pharisees. And so when we see Pharisees, we're like, oh, like, they're bad, right? That is not what have, that's not what have, would have come to someone's mind when they heard the word Pharisee. 
right? The Pharisees were, they were, they were religious. Um, they, they were devoted to the Lord in more ways than most of the general population. And by that, I mean they, they, they had given their lives to preserving the law of God. Right? They were protecting the Jewish culture from assimilating with the Roman culture and, and, and becoming more secular. They were, they were zealous about the scriptures, and they wanted to preserve the integrity of the scriptures. They didn't want them to be changed or lost. They, they advocated and taught how to follow the law of God. So when you think of a Pharisee, think of someone like that. A tax collector, on the other, on the other hand, would have been... Uh, just basically, like, it sums up, I mean, a person that is far from God, right? Even Jesus kind of had this imagery in his mind when he speaks in Matthew chapter 5, verses 46. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't even the tax collectors doing that? And you're like, wow, if Jesus roasts you, like, you know that's a bad reputation, right? Like, um, and, and so they would, there's just so much negativity associated with the position of a tax collector. And so when you hear that story begin, you're thinking, okay, I kind of know where this is going. But let's keep reading. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. Right, and as you hear that, you should be thinking, wow, like that's pretty like, rude, maybe awkward. He's like praying and pointing, right? He's, he's subtweeting this tax collector who's standing there. Uh, like this is, uh, that, that, okay, you, we kind of hear that and that strikes you, you say, okay. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the parable here ends in exact reverse, right? It'd be like going to Midnight Yell, right? And the yell leaders get up there and they're like, I got a little story for you, Ags, and they're doing the little walk thing. And then they proceed to tell a story about a longhorn and they're like, and he was awesome and he was great. And you're like, that is not the main character that I thought you would pick, right? Like you would be thinking like, this is kind of inappropriate or what? like, so the story does not end the way that you think it would. And I think Jesus is doing that on purpose. He's not trying to slam the Pharisees. He's trying to get you to repeal away a lot of the superficial things that we think God cares about, like titles or position or longevity of faithfulness or whatever it is, right? Peeling those things away, he says, what God cares about is your heart posture. What is your heart posture towards God? And the kind of heart posture that God looks for when we pray is that of someone who is humble. That of someone who is humble. God loves humble prayers. And he says that the tax collector goes away justified, right? A lot of times when we think justified, like we think Romans, and it's like, okay, does that mean he's saved from his sins for offering this prayer? I don't think Jesus is sharing this prayer or this parable um, to talk about how we are saved. I think he's trying to tell us what does God care about in our heart posture? And that word justified, I think, really can be translated, he's made right or he's on, he doesn't, he lacks conflict with God, So the tax collector leaves 
having been unified with God, having removed any barrier that he has with God. Meanwhile, the Pharisee walks away, and he still has conflict with God because his heart posture is not right. So what happened? What's wrong with the Pharisee's prayer? First off, it's long, right? I just want, you to, just, I just want to give a few uh, observations. The Pharisee's prayer is 33 words. The, the, the tax collector's prayer is just seven in this parable, right? The tax collector confesses that, that he is a sinner. The Pharisee compares himself to the tax collector and points out the tax collector's sin. The tax collector asks God for mercy. The Pharisee does not ask God for anything. The Pharisee draws out his prayer and he justifies himself before God. God, look what I have done for you. I fast and I tithe. So how does pride slip into our prayer life? I think there's two big ways that I want to highlight. I think oftentimes we slip into thanking God for our life instead of asking God to move in our life. Now, thanking God is not a bad thing, right? We see that all over scripture. With thankfulness, make your request known to God. But I think what we can often slip into is this idea of just praying and saying, God, thank you that my life is the way that it is. God, thank you for this, and thank you for this, and thank you for this, and thank you for this. And what we are actually saying is, God, I love my stuff. Thank you for giving me it. And I love my stuff. Please don't take it away. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that, that pulls back, and pride can can seep into our life. And really what we're saying is, God, I'm content with what I have right now. Not, not in a holy way, but God, I, I just want my stuff. Don't take it from me. Has pride slipped into your prayer? Instead of asking God to move, instead of confessing our sins and asking God for forgiveness, which one would better characterize your life or your prayer life? one of confession and, and acknowledging your sin before God, or one of simply just thanking God for the stuff he's brought into your life. To illustrate this, like, uh, I used to lead a, a trip to Honduras back in the day. I was actually working at a different church, and we would take students, high school students. And it was so interesting because we would go on this trip, and our students who were coming from the Dallas area would see just the poverty uh, in a way like they've never experienced before. And so often, like, we would talk about, like, we would debrief, debrief the trip on the way home. And so often the takeaway was, man, like, they just don't have a lot. And I, like, I feel bad for them that they don't have a lot. I'm just so thankful for my stuff, right? And, and, and it sounded like at first glance, like, that sounded, like, almost noble. But as like, you peeled it back, it was like, man, that student just walked away saying, God, I'm glad I'm not like them. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I live where I live and that you've given me what you've given me. And as I think about that moment, that heart posture, it makes me think of what the Pharisee prays. God, thank you that I'm not like other people. How often have we prayed that? So I think the first thing is we ask, or instead of asking, we just thank God. And the second thing is, I think we often justify ourselves before God. We say, God, yeah, I, okay, I understand that whatever, I have this issue, but it's not that big of a deal. We try to downplay things. It's like, it's like when you build your resume, right, where you try to stretch the truth as much as possible without lying, 
right? And you're like, I didn't just work on a team. Like, I'm a, like a manager, a collaborator, excelling in teamwork infrastructure, right? Uh, and, you know, it's not like you just know how to type. You're like, I'm proficient in word processor. Um, and you say all that. We, like, elaborate these things. And I think we do that with our prayers to God sometimes. And we can point out the things that we are doing for God or the things that God maybe owes us because we've done those things. How often do we justify ourselves? And so I think the challenge for us is to say, let's remove that and let's humble ourselves in prayer. I love what James uh, chapter 4 says, because it says it so bluntly. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. How often do we not receive what God wants to give us because there's selfishness or pride in our heart? And James says, man, if we humble ourselves before the Lord, that delights God and he draws near to us. But those who exalt themselves, the Lord humbles those people. So really practical on this point, I want you to think about where is your attention when you pray? When you pray, where is your attention? There's two things that I think we should put our attention on. God's sufficiency and our insufficiency. I think that's how we practice healthy humility, right? We think about God's sufficiency and how great and how otherness he is, that he is not like us and he's not frail. He, he's dependable. He is great. He is wonderful. And let's praise him for that. And then we also focus and confess on our brokenness, that we are faithless often, that we are broken often. We practice healthy humility and prayer through thinking about God's sufficiency and our insufficiency. And I love what Psalm 51 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. There is a faith that is birthed in us that can only take place when we humble ourselves before the Lord. I think a lot of us are just afraid to be humble before the Lord because that means saying, God, I do not have my act together. God, I do not, right? I, I, I do not have what it takes. But there's something amazing that happens when we are broken before the Lord and we confess our sin. What does Jesus say? It says, those who humble themselves he will exalt. There's a special grace that we get to experience when we confess our sin to God and we humble ourselves. God loves to exalt and lift up those people. And we experience the power of God in our life in a new way when that happens. My next point and last point, prayers that thrive are expectant. Prayers that thrive are expectant. So I actually want you to go to Luke chapter 11 for this last little story. Luke chapter 11. And Jesus is uh, giving a teaching on prayer in Luke chapter 11 as well, right? One of the famous uh, passages in scripture, the Lord's prayer is given here, Luke's version of it. Um, and then he talks again about persistence in prayer. And then he finishes um, starting in verse 11 with a, a, a small parable about what God is like. So read with me in verse 11. 
Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, uh, we are fully into the Christmas season, right? As you notice by the Christmas trees and the candles and other different things, right? We are in the Christmas season and uh, my wife is really good at being on top of like gift giving and things like that. So there's already gifts underneath our tree uh, for our kids and all that stuff. And uh, she actually snuck them in there right before we were leaving for Thanksgiving. And when we came back to our house after Thanksgiving, our son, uh, he's about three years old, Adler is his name. Um, he kind of comes home and notices those gifts for the first time. So he's like walking in and then he's like, whoa, there's gifts. And it was so funny what he did because he didn't, he didn't like, like touch them or do anything. He just kind of like sat on the coffee table and just stared at them. And he was just kind of like, yeah, I'm just going to just, and I was like, Adler, what are you doing? And he's like, just, just looking. I was like, what are you looking at? He's like, I don't know, just looking. And he was just fixated because he knew there was gifts. And he knew the kind of parents that we were, right? Because there's, there's this history of us giving him good gifts. And he's like, I know what's coming. I'm just going to stare down these gifts right here, right? And I'm like, Adler, there's like a month until Christmas. Like, you got to do other stuff. Right? And like, you can't just wait here. And he's like, no, this is good. This is what I want to do right now, right here. And I think that is a picture of this expectancy that we should have in prayer. Prayers that thrive are expected. And I love what Jesus shares in this little snippet here talking. And he says, hey, if you ask your dad for something, like you ask him for an egg, which that's a weird request to make of a father in this day and age, right? Father, can I have an egg, please? No, that's weird. Stop. No, no. He says, uh, right, if you ask for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? He says, no, right? Even though there's a sinful, corrupted nature in all dads, there's still something intuitively in them that knows how to give good gifts to their children. And Jesus says, if that's the case, how much more will your heavenly father who is perfect and flawless and knows the hairs on your head and knows exactly what you've been through and what you're going through and knows exactly what you need and and has put together your personality. He knit you together in your mother's womb and he's known you since the day you were born. How much more will he give you good gifts when you ask him? And Jesus is trying to say, you should expect to receive abundantly from your father in heaven. Now, uh, this little exchange, I was reading one commentary that was talking about um, how scorpions actually can like pierce an egg and live inside of an egg. And so it's not an arbitrary uh, example that Jesus is giving, uh, perhaps. Um, And so some people would say, right, if you wanted to deceive someone, you would give them an egg with a scorpion in it. Um, or or a, a snake that is curled up could look like a fish if you're like blind or something. I don't know. But, um, but there's this air of deception that is in uh, this exchange where 
yeah, I might ask God for something, but what if he actually gives me a trap or something I don't want? And I think a lot of times we think, well, what God wants for me is for me to deprive myself of as many things that I enjoy as possible. And like, that's what God wants for my life, right? Like he just wants me to like take the, the tough road. And, and so often like hardship is what God wants to give me. And while God gives us hardship sometimes, and he allows that to come our way, what God wants for us is us to thrive. He wants for us to experience him, with, and he wants us to experience joy. God wants us to experience life and life to the full. I love what James once again says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, right? And, and James's readers, right, they were being heavily persecuted and they were tempted to believe like, why is God doing this to us, right? And James kind of challenges them and he says, hey, you do not have because you do not ask God. Or when you ask, you ask without faith. And he says, and you're tempted to believe that God is just like picking on you or, or trying to give you something evil, and he says, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect thing that we experience in this life comes from our Father. And he doesn't change. He's not, uh, he's not a trickster. He's not malicious in his intent. He gives us exactly what we need. He is a good Father to us. So how do we apply this? I think this point in particular is memorizing scripture about who the Father is, abiding in the truth of who our Heavenly Father is, right? How can we believe and talk to our Father in heaven if we don't know what he is like? And that comes through knowing the scriptures and reading and seeing, man, look what God is like. Look what his character is like. So for example, like in Philippians chapter four, I quoted this earlier. It says, do not be anxious for anything, but by everything, make your requests known to God, right? Make your prayers and petitions. And what it says immediately after that, and it says, if you do that, it says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And you meditate on that. Man, when I come to God with my anxieties and the things that freak me out in this world or the stresses or the uncertainty of the future, what the scriptures say is what God wants to give us is the peace of God which surpasses understanding and it guards our hearts and minds like a tall wall around a city and it protects us. Man, the more we memorize that and abide in that, and we expect that as we pray and interact with God, it'll change us. So I want to end just by recapping. How do we begin to develop a, a prayer life that thrives? It's through persistence in prayer, humility in prayer, and expectancy in prayer. And there's one last tension that I just want to, I guess, kind of, I guess, touch on here, right? Because a lot of uh, what I've, I'm afraid that you may have heard today is, man, if I become a person who expects a lot in prayer or I become a person who's humble in my prayers or I pray often, then God is going to start giving me stuff and it's going to be good. Like, life's going to get real great real fast. Um, and that's not actually the promise that Scripture makes, right? Oftentimes, the answer to our prayer is no or not right now. And if you're like, that doesn't seem right, think about this. Paul, right, 
we don't know what it was. Paul had this thorn in his side is how he describes it. And he, he talks about how it's this like tormentor or something that is just, man, it's a presence in his life that created stress. And he says he pleads with God to remove the thorn from his side. And God says, no, my power is made perfect in your weakness, but I will be with you. Or Jesus most famously prays in the garden, God, let this cup pass from me but your will be done. And the father in that moment says, no, right? This cup will not pass from you. And so this is not a, man, God's just gonna do whatever I ask him to do. But what he does promise, as James 4, 8 says, when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And we experience his power and his presence in our life when we commit to pray. And so here's what we're going to do to close. Um, I actually just want to give a moment right now for us just to pray together. Um, and so I just want you to take a moment individually wherever you are. Um, and, and if this is new or, or you feel uncomfortable, that's okay. You don't have to. But just pray silently where you are. Um, and I just want you to pray and, and just think about whatever, whatever, the po- whatever points we talked about today, if you connected with one of them, whether that's, okay, let me practice humility and confession, or let me think about um, who God is as my heavenly father. And just whatever is on your heart right now, just pray. Respond to God's word. And then I'll close us here in just a few moments.